My son, Zach, loves to hear me tell and retell the story of the day he was born. And to my great credit, I have managed to remove all the gory and painful bits and distilled it into a central plot line. The great discovery. I always start, when I had a baby in my tummy, I knew one day he was trying to get out and the baby pushed and pushed. And do you know who it was? And then he can't handle it. So he goes, it was me. Cause he knows his lines. And I always say, but I didn't know that yet. And then I went to the hospital and the baby pushed and pushed and he wouldn't come out. And do you know who it was? It was me. But I didn't know that yet. And finally it was time and the baby pushed and pushed and finally there he was. And the nurses picked him up and wiped him off and checked him and weighed him. And by this point he can just like not handle what is happening. And he goes, it was me, mom. (laughs) But I didn't know that yet. And then they put the baby in my arms and we looked into each other's eyes and we loved each other. We loved each other that very moment. And then you know what I said? And his eyes are always wide. And this is our favorite part. So we take our time. I said, it was you. It was you the whole time. And there it is. It was you. And then once there was a you, then there was the whole bit after. The feeling where you love them so much that your heart explodes when they walk on a regular sidewalk near a road, or the way your hair on your neck stands up whenever you see them climbing anything taller than a toaster. You know, love. Nerve-wracking, horrible, regular love. My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Sometimes love makes us afraid of all there is to lose. So how do we balance our loves and our worries when it comes to being a parent in a world that doesn't guarantee safety? When you can't promise your kid will skate by unfazed or unharmed by the world around them. My guest today knows a lot about that kind of love. Mary Laura Philpot is the author of I Miss You When I Blink and Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, which was named, well, basically everyone's favorite, a New York Times book review, et cetera, et cetera, NPR, everyone, everyone who is smart, kind, and funny was like, yes, I love her. Her writing has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. Mary Laura lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family, and I already decided we are friends. So thank you for entering my reality at last. Hello. (laughs) Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so happy to be doing this. You have such a beautiful way of making, like, I, I, I feel that when I hear your authorial voice, it feels warm and loving and like hilariously intense about things that I'm intense about. Like (laughs) you are obsessed with your kids in a way that I, I mean, I always tell Zach, like, I don't know what happened. I was pregnant. Then you came out of my body and then a stranger moved into my house. (laughs) And now all my things belong to you. And I got, and now you may never take risks or else it will hurt my heart and stay home and never leave me. Right. 
it's a healthy kind of intensity we have, right? Yes. When you're never allowed to leave. It's perfectly normal. Hilariously intense is a great phrase. I'm going to go change all my social media bios <laughs> to just Mary Laura Philpine, hilariously intense. It's, it's, I mean, intense is right. I'm a very intense feeler. I feel everything very intensely. Not too long ago, I was at a luncheon. I love speaking at luncheons because A, you get free lunch and B, like everyone's happy. So even if you don't speak well, they're happy already because they had dessert. And I was I was leaving this luncheon and it was a group of, I, I don't know what this club of women is, but they're all like sort of older and very well-heeled and have nice earrings. And they just look like they've all kind of made it. And I was walking out of the room and a woman who it was 80 years old if she was a day grabbed my arm and said, thank you for uh, the Southern accent. Thank you for coming. You make us all feel less crazy. (laughs) That's why it's good to feel things intensely and then tell people how intensely you feel them because they feel less crazy by comparison. Oh my gosh. gosh. So real. It reminds me of all the times I'm standing at a party and I say something that I think is normal and then someone goes, Thanks so much for opening up. I was like, oh, no, no, no. That was right. regular yeah. levels of information. Yeah, that was half closed. You haven't even seen opened up yet. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's such an intimate relationship between love and this desperate desire to throw yourself off a cliff to protect yes. the objects of your love. Yes. And how it makes us want to rush toward like it I don't know I it makes me want to bubble wrap everything and everyone I have ever loved you think a lot about that close connection between love and fear why do you think it is that love actually just makes us more afraid because once you love someone else you have so much to lose you know that's that that backward deal of the universe the more love you get in your life the greater loss you stand to have at some point because we're not immortal. And, you know, as much as I like to imagine myself as some sort of superhero who, by the power of wishing I could keep everyone safe with my my love and my care, can make it so, it it is not so. And I know the rational part of my brain, the part that knows I'm not a superhero, knows that to be true. And so that's the the fear that comes with it. And, and you know, you mentioned my kids earlier. They're just one example. I, I irrationally and desperately fear for my parents. I irrationally and desperately fear for my friends, my dogs. I mean, it, 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 if I'm driving down the highway and I see a little deer like walking by the edge of the woods, I am like irrationally overcome with dread for that deer and like, which should i should i pull over what do you do? is that that could cause a wreck and then the more people could get her like which is the what's the least damaging scenario here I, I think if you're a loving person and you're very in touch with the love that you feel for other living beings that fear just comes with it i love what you said about the backwards deal of the universe yeah is you just you accidentally overpay yeah I find too, especially when I'm launched into fear, when like one second ago, everything was very normal. Mm -hmm. Like we can have these befores and afters that are sort of hysterically monotonous at one point. Like, yeah, I am doing dishes. 
people are commenting about uh, if it's Canada, people are commenting about like um, rain levels, so many rain levels. And if you wouldn't mind taking me back to your big lurching moment, Mm -hmm. you were having this very even kind of moment. And then you were suddenly so terrified for your teenage son. If you don't mind taking me back. We were having, you know, probably a very typical experience for families that have teenagers when it's getting close to the holidays and it's high school exam time and the mom and the dad maybe haven't done all their Christmas shopping and I forgot (laughs) to turn on the crackpot for dinner. Like everyone was kind of snapping at each other a little bit and, and being grouchy in that way that loving families often are. Um, but we were getting through it. You know, it was one of those things where I'd given everybody a pep talk that day. Like, guys, all right, you just we're going to just power through. You study for the exams. I'm going to wrap the Christmas presents. We've got just a few more days and then it's the holidays and we'll all just get to relax and be together and it'll be great. And that night I went to bed um, and at four o'clock in the morning, my husband and I woke up to this sound that at the time in my half asleep brain, I thought was the sound of someone ramming down our front door. I don't know why that's where my brain went with it, but it did. So I sat up in the bed and I, I said, the door. And my husband sat up too. And he was like, I'll, I'll go see. And I, he walked out of our bedroom in the dark and I could sort of barely see him and hear his footsteps. And I heard him kind of go step, 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 like normal walking steps and then running. And I thought, okay, something bad is happening. And I was more awake at this point. So I got up and I ran to where he was, which is in the bathroom, just down the hall from our bedroom. And our son was on the floor, unconscious. And the sound we had been hearing was his body hitting the tile floor again and again and again. He was having a seizure. By the end of that day, by nighttime, we had had the ride in the ambulance, the trip to the hospital, the EEG, We knew that he had epilepsy, which was a complete shock. But in that moment at 4 a.m., I didn't know any of the stuff I would know by the end of the day. I saw him on the floor and I thought, this is it. This Mm -hmm. is the kid who made me a mom. Like this, he was there for that big before and after. And now here we are at this other before and after. Death has come for him. Like the universe has come to take him back. That is what it felt like was happening that morning. There's something about how surreal time like that is. It feels, they almost feel more realistic than than that there could be any other intervention in the world. The way you describe going to the hospital and like untangling all of the words and categories and asking for the new tests and checking with people outside the room, other experts you knew to make sure that they were even beginning to like wrap their brains and minds around the complexity of what was happening to him. And then, and then the horrible satisfaction of a diagnosis that was like, not even really that helpful. It sounds like. Yeah. Horrible satisfaction is such a good term. It, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who I'm a nerd and I like information and I like answers. I like to get an A on everything. And even in, you know, life's most critical crisis moments, that part of my brain is active. So that part of my brain in the hospital that day was like, okay, we need to know what this is. We need to know Mm -hmm. what happened. We need to know what's going to happen next. And, and so, yeah, like you said, I was talking to the doctors there, but then I was also on the phone with my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, 
happens to be a pediatric neurologist, of all things. So I was on the phone with her and she was saying, bar the door and don't leave until you get this specific kind of test. And I was like putting the phone behind my back going, I hereby bar the door and won't leave until you give us this test. Um, But at the time, it felt like if I can just have words for what this was, if if I can have a diagnosis and you can tell me what happened so that we're not wondering. Then, I'll, then I will feel okay. And of course, by the end of the day, we had the words. And funny enough, I did not feel okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I felt like, wait, now I have 200 more questions, Great. which is how, you know, that's how life goes. Every time we think like, there's this, just this one thing I need to know, and then I'll feel good. Well, because, right, you were describing epilepsy as, as different from any other kind. Like it's, it's like a, the biggest possible umbrella. So you're like, well... You have a thing that could be everything. Right. It's just catch-all term. It means has seizures. It doesn't mean like one specific disease. Like there are so many things that are considered epilepsy. Like one, you know, you might have epilepsy and I have epilepsy, but we live completely different lives with completely different seizures and symptoms. And so, you know, we, we knew a little something when we left the hospital that day, but there was so much we didn't know. And that kind of kicked me into this overdrive of trying to figure out, all right, I have more uncertainty than I've ever had in my life and it feels more critical than it ever has before. How can I get some certainty? Yes. Some people seem kind of born wired for worry and other people learn to worry, like especially the more they experience that side of luck that makes you feel like you're just falling through every crack in the universe. Mm Mm-hmm. If you were going to do one of those like personality, 17 magazine personality inventory tests, we're like, what kind of worrier are you? Who, who am I? You know, I love those tests. I love I any test that gives me a label. <laughs> me too. I'm a Leonardo DiCaprio. He's just joking. <laughs> right. <laughs> those are um, always the choices. Right. Like, fine. I took a personality test once that was supposed to tell you your top personality trait. And I wish I could remember what the test is called, but I took it. I filled out all the answers and I got to the end and it said, surprise. You have a tie. You have two top personality traits, and they were cheerfulness and anxiety. <laughs> and I thought, I have never felt more seen in my whole life. That is so extremely accurate. Um, but in like the kind of warrior I am, I think some of it must be hardwired because I can remember being very young. And having these sorts of leanings when like, there's nothing that could have made me a warrior when I was that little. There was a part of me, even when I was really young, that was drawn to the dark side of the human experience. Not so much in a like, you know, I'm a super dark goth little kid, but just out of curiosity. You know what? Okay. I know people die. I know pets die. What is, what is that like? Like, what are all the ways you can die? I went through a phase when I was really little where I was reading I would go to the little scholastic book fair and spend all my money on sad books. Yes. So I bought like A Summer to Die by Lois Lowry, (laughs) you know, all of those. And I just ate them up. My parents drew the line when I ordered Alicia, My Story. It was like the fourth story of young Polish Jewish girls who died in the Holocaust. (laughs) When they were like, oh, Kate. One is enough. We we might need to. Right. Space these out. (laughs) 800 pages into another like deeply tragic account of but what i wanted to know was like who are we if right 
And what, what, what happens if you take the lid off this whole world, then like, what would I find? What pours in and what comes out? And, and if I can understand that, then maybe I will be prepared for whatever comes my way. If I can understand the absolute deepest depths of every different feeling you can have, nothing's going to come along and surprise me. Nothing will happen that I'm not prepared for. First of all, I'm so confused that we grew up apart. I mean, obviously, <laughs> we were we we were basically next door neighbors emotionally, right. emotionally. during this season right. of our lives. But I think there are some people who are drawn to that way of thinking and feeling and, and seeking out those feelings to try them on and be curious about them and really feel that part of the human experience. And some who are not. I mean, I I know like. Even today at age, how old am I? 48. I will read books or watch movies where just awfully sad things happen. And then I will try to go recommend them to friends. Like, oh, (laughs) you got to watch this show. It takes place in a hospital. And my friend will go, no, why would I, why would I watch that? So I I get that it's not everybody. Like not everybody is like, let me just go ahead and marinate in the darkness for a while. (laughs) I don't think I've ever talked to anyone about my own. My horrible long stretch, only reading Alicia my story. So thank you. This was <laughs> this was deeply cathartic. What was your parents' relationship like to worry? Your dad had a very a very post-apocalyptic job that might surprise some people. Literally. Um, yeah, that's the reason the book is called Bomb Shelter. The original title for the book when I was working on it as a draft was Hello from Upside Down, which is the name now of the second chapter. And it was called that all the way working through until I got to the chapter. and started writing about my dad's job that he had when I was little that I didn't find out about until I was like, 42. I mean, I was I was in my 40s when my dad casually dropped into conversation something about a new book that had come out at the time by Garrett Graff, who is so smart and really interesting historian. The book was called Raven Rock. And my dad was like, oh, you know that new book, Raven Rock, about uh, the government's secret underground nuclear shelters that they maintained throughout the Cold War, you know, where they could like hide the president in case of the nuclear bomb. And I was like, yeah, I have heard about that book. And he goes, yeah, me too. It reminds me of when I worked there. And I was like, when you worked where, dad? And he was like, at Raven Rock. And, and it would just. Oh, that, that, that would remind you of that then, I suppose. Cash, well, I suppose it would, since it's about that exact thing. Um, and that is, and, and you know, immediately I hit him with like 20 questions. Like when, where, what, How, where was I? You know, apparently all this took place um, when I was a toddler. My brother was an infant. We lived outside Washington, D.C. And of course, I've known all my life that we moved around a lot when I was little because I remember moving. I knew we moved for reasons that had something to do with my dad's medical career. He's very specialized. And so he was doing uh, fellowships at different times. Like I, we lived in Durham for a while. When he was doing something at UNC. So I knew we moved a lot, but I n- never really questioned why we lived any specific place and therefore had never gone, well, why did we live outside DC? And it turned out it was because my dad was one of the army doctors whose job it was, in case of the big bomb dropping, to 
get in an ambulance and go over to Raven Rock, open it up, receive the president and whoever the other chosen people are, lock it down and keep everyone alive. Like that was one of his jobs, was to literally prepare for the end of the world, run drills. and, And I didn't know it until a few years ago. And so- their relationship with worry, I don't know. It, it, it's so different. Like my understanding of their young adulthood now is so different than it used to be. But they were born, you know, right at the beginning of the Cold War, the end mm-hmm. of the 40s, beginning of the 50s. That's when they started showing those little videos to school children about if you hear the siren, hide under your desk as if a desk could, you know, keep you safe from a nuclear bomb. That's what they grew up in and were used to. And my dad was in the army and had this training and, and just very much was of a generation where you do what your government asks of you. And they asked him to be the guy that gets ready when the bomb drops. And so he did. And then didn't mention it for 20 years or 40 years. Yeah. And you're a little wondering, like, hey, just curious, if you plan to leave as you had promised to do, where what would happen would, to us? Where would I go? Right. In this scenario exactly that's one of the like things that kind of dawned on me in waves after that phone call with my dad i was like oh my gosh what an amazing job what a huge responsibility wait a second (laughs) (laughs) they don't let the staff people bring their families into the you know the special bunkers we would have been you know blown to hot dust i guess and that's something that he walked around with and my mom walked around with i mean she knew what he was doing Maybe it's no wonder that I grew up with this little streak of dark worry on the inside. Like maybe I was absorbing things that I didn't fully understand. Who knows? The idea that worry is something that we can't easily unlearn and it might pop up in funny ways. I loved reading about how your dad used to send you those non-perishable foodstuffs to college. In college. You'd be like, oh, here we go. Canned beans. Right. But but so that was when I was like 18. So I'm 18 getting these boxes at college. You know, everybody else gets boxes from their parents and they had copies of like magazines and cash and brownies. And I would open mine up and it's like four layers of canned fruit, you know, and then canned meat (laughs) with no note, just a box of canned food. And no kidding. My roommate and I used to joke. Does he think we don't have food? Does he think we're building some sort of survival bunker? We used to yes. make that joke. 20 something years later, <laughs> it all makes sense. That to Tell him, me. you know, just like to us now, once your kid's life starts, time moves so differently. And so to him, the 18 years between me being a baby and, and him doing those test runs for the end of the world and me going off to college felt like a second, you know? Whereas to me, it was like 18 years of being a child and then growing up. It was all this time. It all makes sense in retrospect in in such a strange way. Looks exactly like worry and probably about $40 of shipping at the post office. Yes. (laughs) He's like, oh, she'll really, this will really be worth it. She's going to love this. (laughs) Like I wish thinking back, like I could have used all that Chef Boyardee as like, I could have bartered with it. You know, I could have gone to parties and been like, I'll give you two beefaronis <laughs> if you give me one beer. But we just <laughs> ate it. <laughs> I like you so much. That's so funny. <laughs> but really, I mean, this is... I'll give you two beefaronis. It's so great. 
What do, I, what do I need to trade to get one Jägermeister at this party? When the bad thing does happen, at least in my brain, it does a very strange thing to my experience of worry. You said something like... Um, worry programs us into this sort of like what if relationship and and then it it feels like it cements then into a kind of if then for Mm -hmm. me then i'm like then i feel like i have a predictive superpower totally the whole universe totally and i have this conversation all the time with my therapist because she she says and she's correct that if you're too good at storytelling what happens yeah. is your brain, which is spinning out all these what if stories, what if the plane goes down? What if there's a flood? What if, what if, what if your brain tells the stories too well and they're very believable and they seem very real. And then you have an actual emotional reaction to that made up story. So you go through the stress, the emotional stress, and honestly, the physical stress, like the heart beating and the sweating and everything of 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 reacting to something that hasn't even happened. But all it takes is one time yes. for it to be right. For it to be always. Yes, right. Exactly. One time that you're like, what if there was a flood? And the next day there's a flood. And you're like, see, yeah, I am a superhero. I can predict the future. And because I thought about it in advance, we had sandbags ready. So this is why I now have to worry about everything constantly because I'm the only one keeping all the planes in the air. That's so true. I think... I think that happens too for people who in the persistence of pain, uncertainty becomes so intolerable. Yes. Like, I just need this to be over. So I I know that when I'm I'm having a lot of I have chronic pain and so sometimes I have these big spirals. And in the middle of it, I would pick an ending, even if it was an unfavorable, like like I just even if it was terrible news. Yes. I would want that last note to just get played already because yes. I'm like going to strangle someone if I don't get that. Yeah. I just need to know when and how it ends. I, I was talking to a friend the other day who has kids a little older than mine. So my oldest is about to turn 20. My youngest is about to turn 17. And this friend of mine has hers are like early 20s. And I was asking her, when do the adolescent brains grow up all the way? Like, when can you count on them to be... <laughs> rational and make good decisions. When does that kick in? And she was like, oh, for some people, the brains fully grow up at 26. For some, it's 25. And I was like, no, I need you to tell me exactly how much longer I have. Like, I need to know when- You're going to have to log this down. Right. Like, when (laughs) when is the date that I can exhale and go, okay, they're going to make smart decisions now. Their brains are fully cooked and they're not this, you know- adolescent mismatch of chemicals and impulsivity and everything else that is in every 17 and 20 year old brain. And sadly, my friend could not give me that date, but I really wanted it. (laughs) I really wanted it. Send her like one of those 365 day tearaway calendars. Right. And be like, write it in, sweetheart. Which one? (laughs) Which one? You have this family motto that I find incredibly comforting. And I know it doesn't sound nice on the surface. So let's let's dig in. But you you say everyone has something. Yeah. What does that what does that mean in your context? And let's talk about how wonderful it is because I find it a delight. 
I thought you might. It feels like something, honestly, it feels like something you would say. I mean, it, um, it, and I can't really take credit for it. I think my husband is the first one who actually like said it out loud around the dinner table. And it was shortly after my son had gotten his diagnosis and was learning how to manage his epilepsy. And the, learning how to manage, as you know, a chronic condition is like such a decision tree of who do I tell and which medicine do I keep in my pocket and and how much rescue medicine do I keep on me? Is that, oh, you know, there's so mm-hmm. many yes, no, if yes, then do this kind of questions to answer. And so he was going through this, like, do I tell people at school, you know, like for my own safety, do I need to tell people so that they know the first aid to do or are people going to be weird about it? Should I not tell people? And I think it was my husband who was like, listen, buddy, you, you can't tell by looking at everyone. But everyone has something, you know, and when then we kind of went through like just around this dinner table. OK, my husband has Graves disease, which is a hyperthyroid kind of thing that he has to take medicine for every day. I have migraines. Mom has migraines, like awful, terrible barfing migraines. Uh, baby sister has asthma. You know, she she has to walk around with an inhaler all the time, like a little cartoon character. This dog over here has an eating disorder. This dog over here has pancreatitis. Everyone has something, but you, people don't walk around with labels that say, my thing is vomitous migraine. <laughs> so you don't know. So you you go to school and you think to yourself, oh, this is a lot of pressure to tell people I have my thing. But what you don't know is they all have their thing too. And some people have more than one thing. Some people have lots of things. Some people are carrying around not only their own thing, but the, the pain and weight and burden of someone else's thing. You know, they're... Kids in high school, you don't know their mom is an alcoholic or you don't know their dad is going through something awful. People are carrying around all this stuff and you don't know. And that makes it sound like the world is really full of misery. But that's not what I mean. What I mean is look around and see all these people smiling and having a good time. They're doing that while having whatever their thing is. You keep going and you you live the little domestic daily parts of your day while also you know, taking your medicine or giving yourself the shot or going to bed early or whatever your thing is that you have to do. This is just what we all do. It's life. I also like the idea, though, that everybody has misery because because (laughs) I mean, that too, you know, (laughs) only because uh, then we all know, like then, then when then we are all, you know, of course, I, well, there's a couple of people now, I won't name names of the people I specifically want to experience the knowing, but it is a lovely feeling <laughs> when you're like, oh my gosh, well, everyone has something and, and the multiple somethings I've been dealing with chronic cancer stuff. And now I'm dealing with, um, a very unrelated, uh, also I- incredibly time expensive, emotionally exhausting, um, chronic pain situation. And when I, when you said everyone has something, I was like, oh Yeah. It's okay. I can, and I can even have multiple somethings. You can. I, although, you know, the, the, the other stupid twisted deal of humanity is that you don't earn any kind of credit by managing your thing well that you can use to get out of having another thing. <laughs> Despite the fact that we sometimes behave like that. It's not like, well, if I'm really good about my thing, then I don't get another one. You could still have another one. No matter how consistently you did your stretches and took your medicine and whatever else, you could still have your other thing. And that's just life. And I feel like the sooner you kind of 
again, this is one of those things that could sound dark, but I think it's really light. The, the, the sooner and more openly you accept, it, it, we all have a thing, and sometimes we get more than one thing, and we can't always fix it, then, then we can stop struggling. We can stop doing that superhero thing that half my brain wants to do, where it's like, no, if I just wish hard enough, I can make things the way I want them. That is struggle because it's impossible. And struggle hurts. But the sooner I say, look, we all have a thing and we can't all fix our thing, but we can do the best we can by each other every day while walking around with our thing. It's a little bit of a bummer, but also it takes the struggle out and it's, and it puts the focus back on, okay, well, if you can't fix your thing and you can't be magical and you can't be a superhero who, you know, puts invisible bubble wrap around everyone you love, what can you do? What could mm-hmm. you do right now? Like what could I do right now that would make somebody laugh or bring joy to somebody or be some tasty thing that someone could eat? Like what can I do for myself or someone else that will just make this moment happier? Yeah. <laughs> I like that you right away went to snacks. You're like, <laughs> the world is full of sorrow. How many brownies am I going to have right now? Because that would bring me joy. Honestly, it does. And that is why I keep chocolate in the house all the time. You are a complete delight. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a joy. This is an absolute joy. And I feel like is something that should happen all the time. I love what Mary Laura said about the backward deal of the universe. We imagine that love will make us safe, that if we just predict all possible outcomes, we can guarantee a certain future. But, but that's not how it works. But as hard as we try, the more we love, the more fear we have. So here is a blessing for all of us learning to carry our love and our worry. Blessed are you, looking at the miracle, the surprise before your eyes, that kid you prayed so hard for, the relationship you hoped would come, the feeling of family you get when you're all together. This chest-expanding, heart-bursting, time-please-slow-down kind of love. The kind of love that would really prefer to be rolled in bubble wrap to be protected just a little longer from the harshness of this world and shows our helplessness in keeping them safe. It is a wonder that so much love makes us so afraid. Blessed are we who remember this strange equation that with so much we have, there is so much to lose. Grant us gratitude for the villages who make us feel less alone and the needs we cannot meet the guarantees we cannot make, the futures we cannot predict. Grant us the practice of presence to count eyelashes, squeeze in another bear hug, and linger in the doorway a little longer. Because yes, the days are long, but the years are short. And that is what this moment offers us. Grant us the wisdom to show them the world in its wonder and tragedy its brokenness and splendor, where joy and sorrow somehow coexist. And grant us courage 
for when we have to let go of the fear, of the worry, of the hands we long to hold, knowing, trusting that our loves and worries are held together by someone greater still. Amen. Hi, my name is Linnea. I'm from Washington State, and I have two teenagers. And what I wish they knew about my love for them is that my love for them is not to restrict them, not to make them miss out on life, not to hold them back or make them small, but rather my love for them is to show them how grand life is, how big and beautiful and full life is. And they don't see that. And I just wish, I wish they could. And I know they will someday. But right now, all they see is the the boundaries. They see the negative. And I want them to see that that, that's not it at all. We want so much for our kids. And that is why we love them, because we want so much for them. And we see the beauty and the amazingness that's in them. And we want to draw that out. Um, Thank you. Hi. um, My name is Carol. So just briefly, my daughters are adults. They're um, 30 and 33, and we live kind of far apart, one in Amsterdam and one in Cleveland. And what I want them to know is that a mother's love is capacious. Um, In other words, anytime we talk and have heart-to-hearts and share what's going on in our life, I'm always struck by the capacity for loving them more and more. And I love the feeling after I hang up of feeling heartful. Um, and I look forward to all the, hopefully the years ahead where that capacity for love growing and um, being able to share that with them means the world to me. So thank you for making this possible to share that. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Stephanie and I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. What I wish my kids knew about my love and maybe worry for them is that after losing their sister to heart defects a couple of years ago, the bravest thing I've ever done is not wrapping them in bubble wrap and just keeping them home. Um, Every risk I let them take is just, it takes so much effort to let them do that knowing what could happen. And yet I know that they need to, you know, do the normal child things. They need to climb. They need to ride their bikes. They need to, you know, cross the street to get to school and, you know, all those things. But being a bereaved parent who is connected to a lot of other bereaved parents for support, I know I've opened the Pandora's box of everything that could go wrong. I know that. There's just so many things that could happen. And, you know, I see cars and trees and windstorms and furniture that's not anchored to walls. And I know that all these things can be deadly. And (laughs) I know my kids someday will probably talk about how anxious their mom was all the time. And I want them to know that it is so hard to let them just take normal levels of risk knowing what could happen and knowing what it feels like to have a child die. I hope that they know that 
it's because of my love and worry for them. Hi, this is Morgan from Flagstaff, Arizona. I want my daughter to know that the way, the weight of how I love her, the magnitude of that has so much gravity that it's changed the fabric of my universe. The way that time works, the way that I orient myself, everything is different because of how I love her. And I want her to feel the, not, I don't want that to be a weighty thing or a burdensome thing on her, but I want it to be something that she feels like it's a cradle that she can sink into. Hey there, I'm Jennifer Collins, calling from Rome, Georgia. I think one of the most difficult things as a parent is the tightrope we walk between holding our children close while also slowly letting them go, of worrying for their safety and future and mental health and friendships and future and where their phone is and why they can't find their shoes, to not letting them see our own worry and echo it in their own lives. Um, even so, both of my children have they have they both struggled with anxiety and depression in very unique and individual ways, especially since the pandemic. Um, I think it's important for my for our kids to know that they're unconditionally loved by both of their parents, and that they have a strong faith that anchors their lives. But there's not a day goes by that a million little worries don't pop up. The biggest thing is that they feel loved and safe. Thanks, Kate. Love your podcast. Listen every week. A really special thank you to our generous partners who make this work possible. Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Leadership Education. And to my wonderful team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Keith Weston, Jeb, and Sammy. Thank you. And I would love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you do me a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It really, really means a lot to us when we get to hear what we do well and also might even do better. You can also leave us a voicemail and who knows, we might even be able to use your voice on the air. Call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.